Okay, we're switching gears to our discussion of eschatology. Now, we have not covered many other passages in the Old Testament that we could cover that would contribute to our understanding of eschatology. But we have laid a foundation from the Old Testament, and I think you've all seen that by looking at the biblical covenants, you get the basic picture of premillennialism, that there has to be a future kingdom of Christ on this earth in order for God to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. Now what I want to do tonight is kind of make the transition from the Old Testament to the time of the Gospels and the New Testament by looking at the topic of the kingdom in the Gospels. Now I've said the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels. When I say that I'm not really trying to distinguish between, for example, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I'm talking about the topic of what Jesus says about the kingdom in the Gospels. And some of what we're going to do tonight is going to seem redundant, but what I'm trying to do is to help remove from the minds, at least of some of you, the assumption that when you see Jesus talking about entering the kingdom, he's talking about getting saved. He is talking about getting saved, but that's not all he's talking about, and you'll see why this is important as we go through this, I hope. Okay? All right. Basically, what happened in the Gospels, among other things, is that Jesus came and offered himself to the nation as their Messiah. They listened to what he said, and they said, we don't want you. Okay? He came and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they said, we don't want you, and we don't want your kingdom. Now, I'm going to very quickly go through the basic picture of the rejection and then we're going to go back and uh, look at it in a little more detail. Okay? In Luke chapter 1, when the angel shows up, he tells Mary that the child that's going to be born to her is going to be the son of David and that he will inherit the throne of David and will reign on that throne. Now, from what we've studied, what is that? That's an anticipation of the second coming and the millennial kingdom. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount, I would argue, and we may get to a discussion of this or we may not, I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' explanation of what it means to repent in the statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's an explanation of the kind of living that would show God that the nation of Israel was serious about having the kingdom be established. Now you remember we looked at the Palestinian covenant and there was a prediction in Deuteronomy chapter 30 where God said, you will rebel against me, I will cast you out of the land and a day will come when you will come to your senses and you will all come to your senses and I will bring you back into the land. That was anticipating the repentance of all the Jews, the national repentance that must take place before the kingdom can be set up. The same thing is anticipated in Jeremiah 31, where God says, they will all know me from the greatest to the least. So repentance was one of the kingdoms, one of, excuse me, one of the conditions for the kingdom to be set up in the Sermon on the Mount 
is Jesus saying, this is what real repentance looks like. It doesn't look like the phony baloney, um, what's the word, legalistic interpretation of the law that you guys are used to. It looks like a sound application of scripture to daily life in such a way that I will see you attempting to please me by obeying the law. Now, having said that, the Sermon on the Mount assumes that the people who are going to try to please God by living that way are already saved. It's not telling you how to get saved. It's not telling you how to repent in order to get saved. It's saying that if you are a believer and you want to convince me that you want the kingdom to be set up, this is what a repentant lifestyle looks like. Okay. Well, actually, before the Sermon on the Mount was given, John and Jesus showed up and they said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They never explained what the kingdom was, did they? There's absolutely not one word of explanation of what the kingdom was. You know why? Because they all knew. That was the subject of the covenants. It was the subject of Old Testament prophecy. They all knew that it meant the promised son of David reigning over the nation of Israel. Okay, now, in Matthew chapter 10, I left out the verses there, and we may or may not get to this, so I'm just going to buzz it by you quickly. Jesus sends out his disciples into the cities of Israel, and he says, go and preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, go only to the lost children of Israel. And then later in the chapter, he predicts that they will be Persecuted, they will be brought before councils, they will be beaten, and he, will, he says, you will not have finished going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now that statement has baffled people for centuries because people say, what does this coming of the Son of Man mean? Okay? it would seem to suggest that something happened during Jesus' lifetime or it's looking to the future or maybe it's looking to A.D. 70. Liberals con concluded that it was talking about A.D. 70, the judgment that fell on the nation of Israel when Jerusalem was destroyed. Oh, I, I'm sorry, I left that part of the puzzle. The puzzle is, if Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen to those people in their lifetime, you will not have finished going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, and it had to happen before the apostles were dead. And the only thing that happened before the apostles were dead was the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, the solution to the problem is the recognition that there was a gap. Okay, remember going back to Daniel chapter 9? There were going to be 69 sevens. And then there's a gap of unknown length, and then we come to the 70th seven. Well, what, what's going on in Matthew 10 is that when Jesus says, you will not have finished going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, he's anticipating a future generation of Jews who will again proclaim the gospel of the kingdom right before Christ comes back. He was not talking about the apostles who just lived here during Christ's uh, first coming ministry, he's anticipating a future group of Jews who will again take up the same ministry of proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
that message will be proclaimed during the tribulation, as we will see in Matthew 24. Okay? I'm dumping a lot of stuff on you. I hope I'm not confusing you. Are you sort of following what I'm saying? If not, we'll get to it. Okay? I apologize if it's too much. All right. In Matthew chapter 12, if you want to turn there, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is ministering publicly. He heals a man on the Sabbath. And then in verse 22, a man who is demon-possessed, blind, and mute is brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals him, and it says, so that the blind man, the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Look at verse 23. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? You understand the question? Could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They say, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. He's an agent of Satan. Now that was the beginning of the process that would lead to the official rejection of Christ. Okay? Immediately after this, he will talk about the unpardonable sin, which we may talk about later. And then we come to chapter 13 in Matthew where there are the parables of the kingdom. And the parables of the kingdom basically tell us that there's going to be a period of time where things are going to be in preparation, but the kingdom won't come until the end of that period of time. Now that period of time of preparation is this gap. It's the time between essentially the cross and really the second coming. Jesus talks about the tares being planted among the wheat and you know various things. He's talking about events that will lead up to the establishment of the kingdom. Okay, now again, I'm just throwing a whole bunch of stuff at you, and we will look at look at many of these things in a little bit of detail later. Okay, I just said that. Now, in Matthew 21, what happens in Matthew 21? Does anybody remember? Big event. <clears throat> what is that event? Shout it out. The triumphal entry. A terribly misnamed event. The words triumphal entry don't appear in Scripture. That's just what we call it. It was not triumphal, was it? The nation did not receive him. Okay? Now, at the end of that chapter, we come to a very important verse. After Jesus has not been received as king, he speaks a parable, starting in verse 33, the parable of the wicked vine dressers. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Let me read that again. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now this verse is a theological battleground. Okay? Premillennialists will say that this is saying that this generation rejected Christ and therefore it will have to wait for a future generation to receive him. Okay? 
That's our understanding in premillennialism, right? The first generation of Jews rejected him, but when he comes back at the second coming, he will be received. Okay? Amillennialists or Reformed theologians would say, no, this means that since the Jews rejected Christ, Christ goes to the church. In other words, the church takes the place of Israel. Okay? Now, that idea won't stand up to what we've already seen from the Old Testament. Okay? And notice he says, it will be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Okay? Well, the word nation isn't a good description for the church. The church isn't a nation. And what did Jesus say to the scribes and the Pharisees? He said, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. He's talking about meeting the conditions necessary for establishing the kingdom. What were those conditions? A repentant lifestyle, a godly lifestyle demonstrated by obedience to the law, which has no use for unbelievers anyway, does it? Okay, It's a call to those Jews to express in their lifestyle the conditions necessary for the kingdom to be established. Now, Matthew 24, which we will look at in detail next week, essentially is a description of the events that will surround the re-offering of the kingdom in the future during the tribulation. Okay, Matthew 25, which we will also look at, will speak of the future arrival of the king, the Messiah, and the establishment of his kingdom. This passage that I've got listed up here, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, is the discussion of the sheep and the goats judgment, which we've talked about before, I think. Okay, now if you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after Jesus goes to the cross, dies, rises from the dead, spends 40 days here on earth, much of it in training the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, right before he leaves, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They understand everything we've been talking about, right? And Jesus says, You dummies! The kingdom is a spiritual concept. I've been teaching you for 40 days. What's wrong with you? Is that what he says? He doesn't say that at all, does he? He says, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. In other words, I can't tell you when it's going to happen. He doesn't say it's not going to happen. Okay? And then we come down, verses 9, 10, and 11, where he goes up on a cloud and the angels say he's going to come back in the same way. And remember last week we looked at Daniel chapter 7 where it spoke of one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's anticipating which coming? The second coming. Okay? So even after Christ's earthly ministry, even after the cross, he still says the kingdom is future. Okay? It's all there. Okay. And I think I just said the next point. All right. That's kind of 
sort of sweeping through the events associated with the offer and the rejection and the postponement of the kingdom. All right. Now, I will give you a lot of this material in the notes next week, so don't feel like you have to copy it all down. All right. Now, let's talk about this statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay. And, and some of this is going to be a review, but let's do it. John appears abruptly without explanation. He makes this pro proclamation. The statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a testimony to them, and then the end will come, he's talking about this statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Now, by the way, if you go out and do evangelism today, is it appropriate for you to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? I don't think so, because the kingdom of heaven isn't at hand. That's not the gospel that we proclaim. Now, I believe that within this call, there was a call to personal salvation. But there was more, as you'll see. Okay? John doesn't explain it, but everybody shows up. They come and they want to be baptized. They must have known what the kingdom of heaven it was. And, of course, they did because of their understanding of the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to take up the same message. Okay? What does that proclamation mean? Okay, now this is... Maybe we'll even skip over this. Let's just... I'm just going to flip through this very quickly. Okay? The reference for the kingdom of heaven goes back to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, doesn't it? Also goes back to Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 9. We've looked at all these passages, right? Okay? But ultimately, the concept goes back to the four biblical covenants. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic or Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, you all know how these covenants established the expectation of the kingdom, right? The Abrahamic covenant established the certainty that Israel's people would exist forever. The Palestinian or Mosaic covenant established that God would bless or curse Israel to discipline and guide her. That Israel would surely fall under the curses of the covenant, including expulsion from the land. It also established that the exiled Israelites would come to the point of repentance and God would restore them to the land. Now, this is where we get the idea that repentance is one of the conditions for the establishment of the kingdom. Now, the Davidic covenant established that a Davidic heir, a descendant of King David, will one day be established as ruler forever over Israel's people in Israel's land. Remember, we talked about the ruler, the realm, and the reign. And the New Covenant established that the repentance of Israel that was predicted in the Palestinian or Mosaic Covenant will be universal. Because Jeremiah says, they will all know me from the greatest to the least. Okay? Now, this is the background of the kingdom of heaven when John and Jesus say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, now Daniel, this is going to be a review, but I think it will be helpful to us. 
Daniel added several key facts regarding this future kingdom that David, that David, that is David's son, will reign over after Israel's repentance. Okay, it will follow four Gentile world empires. Remember that? And when it comes, it will be worldwide and everlasting. This kingdom will come in, it will destroy all the others, and it will fill the whole earth. Okay? The sequence of the empires, according to Daniel 7 and 8, will be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and whatever comes after Greece. And we know from history that that was Rome. Okay? We know that the final empire, Rome, will greatly persecute the Jews and only by the direct intervention of God will the kingdom be established. That's the message of Daniel chapter 7, right? He will persecute the saints for a time, a time, and half, the time, half a times, and then God will declare them to be victors even though they're losers, and the kingdom will be established and the saints will inherit it and it will be theirs forever and forever, even forever. Remember? And Daniel chapter 7 said that one like the Son of Man will be the eternal ruler of the kingdom of God. Who is that? That's the Messiah. That's why Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Um, we're also told that the kingdom will be set up by the God of heaven. That point was made very clear in Daniel chapter 2. And that it will be eternal, right? Once it's set up, it'll never be lost again. That's why the term kingdom of heaven is used in, in Matthew. Because Daniel tells us that the God of heaven will set up the kingdom. Therefore, it is the kingdom of heaven. Now stop and think about this a little bit. A lot of us have grown up, if you grew up in the church, with the idea that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that's in heaven. The kingdom which is heaven. Okay? If you want to enter the kingdom, it means when you die, you go to heaven. But that's not the way the of is being used in the phrase kingdom of heaven. It means the kingdom from heaven. The kingdom established by God who is in heaven. But the kingdom is where? It's going to be here. See where I'm going? Okay. All right. When John and Jesus proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, note that they tied the proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom with repentance. Now, repentance is a changed state of mind evidenced by a changed way of life. Jesus said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, how is God going to know that you've repented? By the fact that your life is going to look different. Okay, in Matthew 5:20. now think about this. If you think that enter the kingdom means get saved, then tell me why this isn't work salvation. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if enter the kingdom means get saved, then Jesus is saying the scribes and the Pharisees aren't good enough to earn their way to heaven, but you have to be good enough to earn your way to heaven. Could he be saying that? He can't be saying that, right? That's heresy. When Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, he's saying that unless this nation demonstrates by a changed way of life repentance, 
visible on the outside that's evidence of the change that's occurred on the inside, I'm not going to set up the kingdom. Okay? Enter the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean get saved. It means be on earth when Messiah establishes his kingdom. Now, it gets more interesting, as you'll see. I would argue that the entire Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of the Old Testament law, I should have the word law in there, designed to explain the nature of lives evidencing true godly repentance or the desire to please God. It assumes that those who respond to the call of repentance are regenerate believers. In other words, it's instructions on sanctification, not instructions on justification. Does that make it clear? Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell you how to get saved. It tells you how God would like you to live if you are saved. Now, it was, it was particularly for that generation of Jews because God was saying, if you want the kingdom to be set up now, this is what I've got to see. But that doesn't mean that it's useless for us, does it? Because the whole Sermon on the Mount is a contrast of a false legalistic interpretation of the Old Testament law with a true, godly, sound interpretation and application of the Old Testament law. And most of it still applies to us. Hey, David. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what the, the difference in the way you name the millennial kingdom, which you're calling the kingdom of heaven, and the eternal kingdom, which follows the bread of life from judgment. Okay, the eternal state? That's what it was. Okay, yeah. In a sense... The millennial kingdom or the kingdom of Christ goes on into the eternal state. It never really ends. But, yeah, the eternal state is not the millennial kingdom. and that, That's a helpful distinction. Okay, good. All right. Now let's clarify further the meaning of the phrase, enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? When John and Jesus proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand... Okay, the historical situation in which the Jews found themselves fit the Old Testament prophecies that would precede the setting up of Messiah's kingdom. Now think about this. The four Gentile empires predicted in the book of Daniel had already come in succession. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Right? The Israelites had experienced and were experiencing persecution. And the Israelites were eager to be free from the Gentile overlords, the Romans. So when John and Jesus proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, the people understood this as a call to meet the conditions necessary for the establishment of the long-awaited Davidic kingdom. The ones who understood it were right. A lot of them didn't understand it. A lot of them said, this isn't the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's not the kind we want. And some of them just weren't interested because they had a big racket going, right? They had this big re religious racket running the temple, changing the money, paying for sacrifices, switching animals. You know, there's a place where the Jewish leaders say, we got to get rid of this Jesus because if we don't, he's going to ruin our. He's going to ruin our. He's going to upset the whole apple cart. You know what I'm talking about, Dave, right? You could probably find it for me, but um, they, they just weren't interested. 
Now, we often assume that the phrase enter the kingdom of heaven means get saved. But if that's what it means, then Matthew 5.20 sure looks like it's telling how to get saved by works, doesn't it? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you have to meet a certain standard of righteousness, and if you do, you get in. That's not what he's talking about. Now, a better approach is to let the Old Testament precedents guide, guide our thoughts. And if we do this, it becomes clear that to enter the kingdom means to come under the reign of Messiah and the promised Davidic kingdom on earth. To enter the kingdom, the individual Israelite must repent. Now, that does include getting saved, okay? But it's not just getting saved. The repentance required for the Davidic kingdom to be established under Messiah must be national repentance. We've established that. And the biblical covenants establish that this will include individual salvation, which is knowing God, and a turning away from sin to a godly lifestyle. Israel must demonstrate repentance as a nation in order for the Davidic kingdom to be established. Now, are you with me so far? Okay. It, it'll become clearer in the next couple of slides. Okay, some important things to note. In order to enter the kingdom, in, or, in other words, in order to become a subject of Messiah's earthly Davidic kingdom, several things had to happen. Messiah had to be present. It can't happen if he's not here, right? Because it's an earthly kingdom. Okay, secondly, the four Gentile empire sequence had to be fulfilled. Thirdly, the Israelites must repent as individuals and as a nation. I know it sounds like I'm being very redundant. Here I am, but you'll see why. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because of the individual versus national dynamic. Make sure you get what I'm about to say here because this is really cool. It will take national repentance of Israel for the Davidic kingdom to be established. However, every Israelite who is saved by faith the ones who believed back when Jesus was here and anybody since then and all the people who believed before Jesus came, every, every Israelite who is saved by faith will one day enter the kingdom whether his generation in Israel repents. Okay, That would be those Jews who are saved during the tribulation or repents nationally or not, either as a mortal, future tribulation survivors, or as a resurrected saint. Now, I don't know if that's clear, but let me explain what I'm saying. Here's the question. If you were a Jew on earth and you heard Jesus preach and you believed that he was the Messiah and you repented, do you get ripped off because your generation wouldn't receive him? And what's the answer? You don't. Why? Yeah, but you repented. You met the conditions to enter the kingdom. And it seems you get ripped off. Well, I met the conditions. Why don't I get to enter the kingdom? Well, get what? guess what? You do. When do you enter the kingdom? At the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back, those Jews will be resurrected. And they will enter the kingdom. And they will live under him. So nobody gets cheated. Pat. What is it? 
Okay. What? No, 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 that's not true either. church saints, which will be us, resurrected Old Testament saints, and resurrected tribulation saints who died during the tribulation. Okay, We are told that we will rule and reign with Christ. Now exactly what form that will take, I don't know. The only hints that I know of in scripture are the parable of the minas, or the talents, in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about, you know, you're given three talents, you're given five talents, you did a good job, you get three cities to rule, you did a good job, you get five cities to rule. I think that we're going to have administrative roles in that kingdom that will reflect our rewards. Now, we've said this before, it's important to say it again, during that time period, there will be resurrected saints and mortals intermingling in some fashion in the millennial reign of Christ. And the dynamics of that are not revealed in Scripture. But it's going to be interesting. Okay? Can I go five minutes more? Yes? You can go four minutes if I have a question. Okay. <laughs> All right. Turn to uh, Luke 17. Okay. 20, 2021, the Pharisees, where I think we're starting to understand this, and they ask yes. Christ, uh -huh. when is the kingdom coming? Sure. And Christ in 21 says, the kingdom of God is basically here. No, he doesn't say the kingdom of God is here. Okay, he says the kingdom of God, he says in your midst or within you. Um, all right, here's my answer to the question. 
in order to make sense of this verse, okay, I've got to make sense of it within the context of everything else. Now, if I'm an amillennialist, this verse is very easy to explain because an amillennialist would say the kingdom of God is the reign of Christ in the heart of the believer. This one is easy for the amillennialist. He's got terrible problems with all the other ones I brought up. I, as a premillennialist, have difficulty with this one. But I think it's explainable, and this is what I would say. Christ made it very clear that he often made statements which were comprehensible to believers but were intended to hide the truth from unbelievers. Remember he talks about the parables in Matthew 13 and he says, I speak in parables so that those who have will receive more and those who do not have even what they have will be taken away. He's talking about understanding. Okay, I believe if the principle of Daniel chapter 7 is applying here that Jesus is talking about kingdom and king kind of interchangeably. And when he says the kingdom is in your midst, he's saying, I'm the king, I'm here among you. And in that sense, the kingdom is almost here. But if you don't accept me as Messiah, the kingdom will not be established. So I would say he's really saying the king is here. I don't think he's saying that the kingdom is present. Okay? It's a difficult answer, but I think if you weigh it in the scales, you'll see that it's vastly easier to explain all the statements from the premillennial view than it is from the amillennial view. But this is one of the difficult verses, no doubt about it. Okay, now I've got two minutes left. Okay. We'll st- oh, this is my last slide, believe it or not. Okay. When we're comparing the statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, with the statement, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, okay? I would argue that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the gospel of the kingdom. It includes a call to personal salvation through faith in Christ and a call to national repentance in Israel as a condition for establishing the Davidic kingdom. However, the gospel statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or John 3.16, whatever you want to stick in there, is only a call to personal salvation through faith in Christ. So what I'm saying is that the gospel of the kingdom includes a call to personal salvation, but it also is a special call to the nation of Israel to repent and meet the conditions necessary for the setting up of the kingdom. And if you'll look in the Gospels, and we'll see this next week, the Gospel of the Kingdom was only preached during the ministry of Christ. You won't find it anywhere in the epistles. And in Matthew 24, Jesus will say that during the tribulation, this Gospel of the Kingdom will be preached as a testimony to the world, and then the end will come, meaning he will arrive. And it's appropriate for that gospel to be preached during the period of tribulation because the king is preparing to return and he's waiting to see the conditions be set up for his return. Okay? That's it. All right. Let's pray. Father, it's been a long night. I pray that you would bring each of us home safely, that you would grant us peaceful rest that you would draw us closer to you, that you would enable us tomorrow by the work of your Spirit within us and by the guidance of your Word 
to gain some spiritual victories that would not only give us a sense of satisfaction and evidence of our growth in Christ, but that would honor you and that would bless somebody else. Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you and walking with you. We long for your son to return, and we pray that he would do so soon. We ask this in his name. Amen.